Uh, weekly update time. Malcolm Honline is with us live via telephone. He is the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update Fridays at this time here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, happy Hanukkah and welcome back to JM in the AM. Hanukkah to you too and to everyone. Thank you very much. What were your thoughts when the news of this week made you realize that there would be an American American embassy in Havana before there would be an American embassy in Jerusalem? Well, the first uh, reaction was obviously joy at the release of uh, Alan Gross, for whose freedom we have worked for a long time. Um, it uh, took five years, but uh, he was released, and the price was the release of the Cuban Three, as we had known all along. Uh, in terms of the relationship with uh, Cuba, I think it's something that will be debated uh, with a lot of heat, uh, because we haven't seen a real change in the Cuban government and its policies. It's anti-Israel stance, it's anti-American stance, it's um, the human rights situation. I think those are all things that will be examined in great detail. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, one of the things I was wondering about, because, uh, I mean, the news as it reviews the history of the last, you know, 50-some years, discusses the uh, the unbelievable alliance that, uh, you know, almost led to, I don't know, you could say almost led to a world destruction in the early 1960s between Cuba and the Soviet Union. Once the Soviet Union collapsed, what was the relationship between then and Cuba? And, in fact, today, what was the relationship and is the relationship between the two of them? Well, they still have a close relationship. It's still a communist country. Uh, but, uh, obviously, at that point, it was a base against the United States. And it was uh, there was heavy Russian military investment. You don't see heavy economic investment. The plight of um, most of the ordinary Cubans is severe. It's been impacted by the sa- They've been impacted by the sanctions regime that's been in place for all of the years. So I think that, that there's still this connection, but it, it's certainly not what it was then. And, of course, everyone in our community wondering about the Jewish community of Cuba. What could you tell us? Very small, and it's uh, the young people leave as soon as they're able to. The um, uh, You know, it's a proud community. The president of the community has been outspoken and has protested. There have been some minor anti-Semitic incidents, and there's obviously been is and has been concern on their part in the relationship with the government and the government policy towards Israel and towards uh, other matters. Uh, so I hope this will be a you know, signal of a better era and that the young people who will continue to will be able to be more freely able to, uh, to depart. The, when when uh, foreign policy shifts like this happen, you know, when they just fall from the sky and they just, you know, surprise everybody. Uh, although, I don't know, maybe maybe you had an inkling based on all your connections that this might happen. Uh, but when it falls from the sky and most people are completely unaware, uh, it, are, is it inclined one way or the other to be successful or not successful? Are secret talks, and we know what secret talks led to when it comes to Israel, but secret talks in general, when they lead to a major foreign policy change, uh, uh, does it usually lead to success or failure? Well, it, it often leads to success when you don't have publicity because you give the opportunity to the other side to climb down. Uh, I met, frankly, with Cuban officials, very high Cuban officials, during the, the last few years. We, we did not publicize it. Obviously, it was conditioned for them and for the, op- the chance to have 
further discussions and hopefully to make some progress. Um, but you have to weigh it because sometimes the public uh, knowledge becomes a leverage tool, and that the, whether it's embarrassment or whether it's public the power of public opinion or leveraging it in other ways, even you know economically, economic boycotts, etc. So you have to weigh in each instance, as we do, and you have, we have to think about what are the consequences, you say, for the Jewish community in, in Cuba. What about the, the, the uh, chance to get gross out? Will it be hurt or helped by publicity? And frankly, it was his decision about when to go public. There were times when they did not want to go public in the hope that this was a temporary move or some misunderstanding or whatever. We did the same thing with Soviet Jewry. When Soviet Jews went and hijacked an airplane, when Soviet Jews made decisions, because it's easy for us to sit here and get headlines, but if we're putting their lives in jeopardy or jeopardizing the possible outcome. So in each instance, and I'm talking about it from a Jewish perspective, but I think American government also has to, or any government, has to weigh what is the most effective means to achieve your end. I do think there has to be consultation, for instance, with Congress. I do think that they have to have a relationship of trust where they can consult, inform, and and uh, get the consent of Congress uh, for the administration to to take major foreign policy uh, initiatives. Is it likely that certain members of Congress were consulted in this process? I think that, well, I know that there have been briefings along because the question has been raised uh, very frequently, and we were told some time ago that things were in the works and that uh, uh, to watch out in the next couple of weeks to see what happens. So I'm sure members of Congress were told the same, at least, and if not more. Yeah, um, we know what's going on. You've described for us what's going on in the Central America, South America. Um, I know that if this would have been a public debate, if this if this whole process would have been revealed at some point, would it have been a very high-profile uh, uh, argument, you know, between one side and the other in the United States. I mean, I know the reaction from both sides is pretty passionate right now. What would it have been like if this whole process was well known over the last few months? Uh, more intense. <laughs> I, think I mean, it would have been a really big. Realize it's a fait accompli. It would have dominated the Sunday morning shows for months. No, it would have the short term because people are not that interested in Cuba. They don't see it as a direct threat. They don't see it as a, it's not an economic powerhouse, it's not a, doesn't have nuclear weapons. Um, the government there has toned down its rhetoric, so I think it would have been an issue. I do think that there are very strong opinions in the Cuban-American community, for instance. You heard Senator Rubio, Senator Menendez, others who have come out very strongly against the resumption of diplomatic relations when they feel that the, we ha- there hasn't been change and that you diminish the, the uh, momentum to change. If you, in fact, reward people without without them having to produce, uh, but uh, and there are people who will argue the contrary that opening up the country will mean that we'll increase uh, domestic pressure and more people will uh, demand uh, a different government, different system, more freedoms, and that's the kind of debate you would have had in in the public, more in public, broader. But again, for for most people, I don't think that this is uh, a high intensity issue all right could any other u.s president have done this why didn't any of the previous united states presidents gone ahead and essentially unilaterally make this decision to go ahead with this type of policy well i don't think that uh, george bush or both bushes would have and perhaps president clinton as well um 
that wasn't their view of Cuba and how you deal with uh, Cuba. This is the way that the president, who believes in engagement, who believes in outreach, uh, he's done it with Iran, he's doing it with Cuba, he's done it with others. And, you know, we will see whether, I guess history will judge whether this was effective or not. Yeah. Um, All right, lots of things to talk about even outside of Cuba, but I, I hope... And, and you have the ability to do this. I hope that you're able to convey and convince certain public officials in this country that that, you know, that smart alecky line, uh, that, you know, uh, of the, uh, of there being an American embassy in Havana before an American embassy in Jerusalem, as smart alecky as it is, it would be a very effective thing to start spreading around. Well, I think one of the things that should spread around is that now with the release of gross, time to release Pollard, not because there's linkage between them, and there is none, but because we see that uh, that if the Cuban government could give this gesture, it's certainly long overdue after 30 years that Pollard be released. Yeah, do you think this will help his chances? Maybe. You never know, huh? Um, all right, uh, it, the, we see what's going on with the Russian economy, and I got a tutorial this week because you know how I am with economics. <laughs> as, as much as I don't know about much, I know even less about economics. Uh, and I got a tutorial about uh, how the price of oil affected all this and how the ruble is now really suffering in terms of its uh, the value of its currency. Obviously, this is going to take a long time for Russia to recover from. Uh, is it a bad idea or is it a bad thing in general? To have a major, or certainly, uh, uh, you know, one of the major superpowers having a faltering economy, could this cause a tremendous amount of disability or instability? I should say, not only in their own country but in the entire region. Well, we can speculate together, and although we know already some of the impact and 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 the most immediate impact, obviously, is on the domestic population, where the economy has been in ruins and the further decline of the ruble means that they have no. The buying power goes down proportionately, and certainly with foreign goods uh, are become prohibitively expensive. Uh, but it affects even domestic uh, goods, and many of the, let's say, the upper class probably had money in rubles and may owe money in dollars, which means that the debt went up double overnight or virtually overnight. But the the question is, how does the government? then relate to does it force them to take a more conciliatory approach reduce the actions in the ukraine which brought on the additional sanctions it doesn't deal with the um, even more important uh, decrease in the price of oil for russia which is the largest exporter in the world of of oil uh, people think you know it's saudi arabia but it's actually russia so for them just not uh, to us the right price of oil is is extremely impactful right. and they budget i think at 95 or 105 dollar oil iran does at 105 or 115 so the the um the default to to the 50s uh, per barrel is dramatic in its impact and before the dramatic drop russia's gdp gross domestic product was the same as italy's so there's very little infrastructure, economic infrastructure, manufacturing, other things. Uh, they have natural resources, diamonds, oil, other things that they can export. But in terms, let's say, of high tech and other things, they have very limited capacity. They so, do. They they do so not. Ex- the question is: Does it lead to a more aggressive foreign policy? Do you try to divert attention? Does Putin try to divert attention by being more aggressive and rallying nationalism? 
vis-a-vis the Ukraine or other things against the Europeans and Americans and talk about, you know, try to blame everything that happened on these external forces? Does it lead to dissent in the country and rise of extremist groups and, and, and more um, violent expressions of opposition to the government? There are a lot of things that could come out of this that may not be pretty, and you see Russia's increased involvement in Syria, in other places. It's, uh, it's the pressure on the former Soviet Union countries, especially in Central Asia, and its uh, potential alliances with in, in, in Syria, the new alliances, Syria, Iran, and Russia. Well, I don't get the anti-American argument. What, would, what is it? What is it that he would tell the public that you know blames is all in the United it's States? American sanctions. It's the sanctions, not because the economy and because the government has done everything right, but because the Ru- Americans don't like their policy to protect um, their Russian brothers and sisters in Ukraine, and they impose these sanctions together with the Europeans, and that is an attempt to undermine Russia because they know Russia is a great power, that the the um, that they want to bring the Russian people to knees, and the Russian people will stand up against this and rally, and they should stand behind the government because Putin is defending them and defending uh, Russian pride and Russian uh, interests. If we want the Russians to get back on their economic feet, do we have to lift some of those sanctions? Well, ultimately, the sanctions, that's what the sanctions are meant to do. They're meant to have an economic impact and to pressure and to build up domestic pressure against a government, or in this case, the Putin government. Um, you know, we have to see. It's been, they've been in place and they've taken a toll. And we have to see actions on the part of Russia to justify lifting the, uh, the sanctions, which is one of the arguments about, you know, Iran, that, that we lifted or suspended partially some of the sanctions, and many argue that that wasn't smart. And, and you see that today the, the Iranians are far more aggressive. The Navy commanders gave an interview this week in which he talked about how they bottlenecked the United States in the, in the Gulf, and they can deploy the, uh, their Navy in the U.S. waters, that they're in the Persian Gulf, uh, this Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean, uh, and we've talked for a long time about what the, what's the significance of what they did in Yemen and what they've done in, um, in controlling the Straits of Hormuz, which are the two key uh, uh, crossing points of the, the Straits to which all the shipping has to go. And the, so that you see a more aggressive stance, and it's not because relief or it's some partial relief in sanctions has made them more amenable in the negotiations, quite the opposite. Looks like they're taking a tougher and tougher stand. Yeah, and a weak Russia has very limited, has much more limited capability to crack down on any neighboring country, and that, of course, might be a necessity for us in the near future. And the Europeans, you know, take this very seriously also, Germany especially. And the, um, and the question of, uh, of how Russia will now play out in the international community will be amenable in other issues to co- cooperate or not. Will they, they try to stick it to the United States? They've, you know, increased their trade and warmed up to Iran and certainly protectors of Assad and in many other instances. Uh, and, and they play the game off. And when America doesn't play it right, when the West doesn't play it right, then countries will say, okay, we turn to the Russians, Egyptians, to go and make major arms purchases from the Russians because they, they when they felt they were slighted or didn't get the response or get what they wanted from in, in terms of purchases. Uh, you saw Azerbaijan, which has fought to be pro-Western, has now made statements about the fact that they are going, uh, that they will go back to, towards uh, more Russian uh, linkage. 
because they're tired of being beaten up on by the West. There are reasons why in terms of human rights, but I think it's, it's mistaken. I think that we should be embracing and helping these countries move along on the, on the human rights front and democratization, but recognize the burdens that they carry, the situation that they are in, vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis Russia, others, domestic uh, pressures from Islamists. Uh, and too often we ignore that. We don't show we understand the realities on the ground. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Special hello to anybody listening on our NSN app, which gives you the chance to comment on anything going on at any time. How many countries do you estimate Russia sells uh, oil to? I don't know the number. I've never seen it analyzed because a lot of oil, you know, spot market, and you can't tell they export it. But and they don't sell anything to the U.S., right? No, we don't. Uh... And um, the United States and its citizens are celebrating at I don't know an average of what is it now two and a half two sixty a gallon of gas. What's the lowest price you remember in your lifetime? Back in the 1800s, I remember <laughs> the price was pretty low. But, I mean, I certainly remember when it was uh, a dollar less. A dollar? A dollar and a half. Malcolm, I remember 40 cents a gallon. Well, you're much older. <laughs> Is that your point? I just find it funny that we... No, you so- asked me what I remember, not what I lived through. <laughs> I find it funny as we uh, celebrate... I, I do remember, uh, I was going to say double-digit uh, gas. Right. I I if I say that, the young people in the audience and sing, what? <laughs> They'll never <laughs> believe I lived it. in the 17th century. And I would go ahead and accuse you of remembering single-digit prices. <laughs> Forget about the doubles. Um, we saw what happened this, you know, it's amazing. Could you imagine what happened this week since the last time we spoke? This attack in Australia and the way it was reported around the world. Again, this whole lone gunman theory, and I'd love your opinion on that, and I'll ask you for it in a moment. And we see what's happening with Boko Haram, and you saw what happened in Pakistan. We, we, we keep using the expression that terror is at our door at this point, and sure enough, that's what's happening. We never know where to expect it anymore. And, um, well, well, first uh, address Australia. I mean, you know, it was reported as this lone gunman. He, he certainly uh, made a point of making uh, the world aware of his association with ISIS and what his demands were as a quote unquote ISIS representative. Did the media do an injustice the way this story was reported? Injustice in what way? That, that this is, we have to acknowledge the fact that these people are in fact tied into, if not officially, then at least mentally, uh, terror organizations are being influenced by them. And not every time be told, this is just a lone madman who's going on a rampage. Look, I think, uh, as you know, I've long made the argument that in most cases, if not all, but in, certainly in most cases, we find some linkage, even if it's not direct membership in a cell, it's certainly influence on the Internet in the mosque, in in uh, propaganda of uh, some form, some recruited in prisons, uh, uh, that there is some connection, as we saw in the Brussels case, where all along they said, oh, it's, you know, the attack at the Jewish Museum was a lone gunman. It turns out he was in Syria. turns out that he was trained there. Um, and we're going to see much more of this. And I can tell you that in discussions just this week with foreign officials and, and American officials, this issue is finally beginning to beginning to get the attention it deserves about what the danger posed by the return of the thousands, estimated 
more than 20,000 uh, foreign fighters from 90 countries that are in Syria today, and that you have a thousand French people, you have many others that, that uh, the U in the UK, MI5, their uh, FBI spends half of their resources on this issue, and and we don't even begin to scratch the surface of of understanding how to cope with the potential here. It, part of the, the, the what horrifies me is that the lack of reaction. You know, we talked about the beheading and how that be, has become so commonplace. Yeah. And, you know, yesterday, uh, one guy killed 150 women in Fallujah because they wouldn't submit to the demand that they become wives to, to ISIL soldiers. Some of them were pregnant, and, and they were just summarily executed, 150 women. Where, uh, more than 100 children, where is the outcry? Why, why is the Geneva Convention convened in Switzerland for the third time since 1949 when it was adopted. And all the three times, what does it deal with? Israel. There's no massacres. It's fighting for human rights, fighting for survival, defending their citizens, trying to protect they to protect their minorities. The only place the Christian population increases where Muslims vote, where they have political parties. They're the ones being brought into the docket at, at uh, the G Geneva Convention uh, session with 126 countries present. And a massacre like this in in Pakistan and all these other countries and the ongoing torture and the Yazidis yesterday had a breakthrough. We, we talked about it for those who don't know of the minority that was in Iraq and was on Mount Sinjar and, and thanks to the efforts of the, uh, the allies, the United States led, they did bombings, 53 raids in two days, but they, on the ground it was the Kurdish troops, the Bashmara that went in, created a, a, a safe passage for them to Erbil and they got out these thousands of the people who had been abandoned and, and up on the mountain there for for a long time without food, without a sufficient weapons. Many of them died, were killed as the ISO uh, assault went on. But you're raising something so fundamental here, is that there's nothing that becomes the breaking point when you say, that's it, no more. Like 9-11, at least woke up America and forced them to revamp our thinking, our security, our status, and not enough. And we, we it over time, it does dissipate too. But it was the impact was felt everywhere, every level of government and society. The only way you deal with these terrorists who are coming back is that you have to have setups. There are local areas that have such setups. There are countries, Britain, for instance, where you have it down to the local level. The United States does not, and other countries do not. And if we have to really put down markets and say, that's it. If the international community would truly mobilize and truly act in a unified fashion against these horrific acts, you know what? You, you understand in the 30s what happened. They could read about Kristallnacht. They could read about all these things. And even those who were of goodwill and could were motivated to respond, after a day or two, the newspapers drop it, people get, move on in their lives, and it's over. And this, to me, is, is the horrific thing that, that, you know, the never again pledge, the part of the world, something you know, we, we knew, but you see it demonstrated so vividly, and that's not for Jews. It's Muslims who are victims, it's Christians who are victims, it's Yazidis who are victims. Look at the Taliban attack in Pakistan, all the children that were killed. In Nigeria, and the, the, the Taliban in Afghanistan, the Boko Haram in, in Nigeria. And, you know, it's, I, I hope people understand what this means in the world, and that, that beheadings, which are going on all the time, executions in Iran, for instance, are skyrocketing. 
He's killing people all the time, and we're sitting and talking to him as if nothing is happening. There is a linkage to what happens inside a country. It's all related. And the, the one-sided actions of the world, just, just in this one week, if I could say, Nahum, the, the things we had to deal with, and believe me, it was no sleep this week, because Sunday, from the whole night, I worked on the fact that we got word from diplomatic sources, non-Jewish, non-American, about what's going to go on in the Security Council, what the plans were, what different assessments, uh, and that the you know the Security Council convenes to try and talk about uh, the Palestinian uh, plan. This is the resolution to tell Israel to get out of Judea and Samaria with a deadline, with no recognition of the Jewish state, with everything. So they took the French initiative, and the French here are pushing this process, and the, the they're trying to take it away from Kerry in part. They want to convene a new Madrid-like conference, for those who remember, but yeah, actually convene yeah. more than 50 countries in Paris. They want the prestige. They want to play a role. They, and for them, as uh, the Fabus the foreign minister said, the second most important issue in the world is this, the Palestinian-Israeli. And, and the first issue is not Iran or the other things we're talking about. It's the climate control, which is an important issue. But, but where's the, the perspective on, on all this? So you have a debate. In the in the, and a draft submitted in the um, UN uh, Security Council to actually Jordan, which is has the Arab seated Security Council, has to introduce it. They were not anxious to do it. Now the Palestinians are backing off, pushing for a vote. They blue lined it to meaning that they wanted to move it more swiftly for a vote. Uh, it will not be. It's a draft, and it gives a, a one year or two year deadline for negotiations. The United States has now come out clearly against it and said they will veto this text. Uh, it does talk about Jerusalem as a, a capital of two states. It talks about, uh, it takes out the Jewish state, as I said. It had other uh, elements in there which go directly contrary to, to American uh, policy, and it talks about a return to 67 um, borders. It does not talk about even the territorial swamps or any of those other uh, arrangements. Didn't deal with Australia. Didn't deal with uh, the Pakistani attack. It doesn't deal with the massacres in Syria, the deaths of so many ongoing, or or in Libya, and the the um, uh, you know the the disproportion and the the reaction. You know, Hamas comes to Tehran. Hamas thanks Iran for the money, the weapons. They fired rockets today towards Israel, and Israel will respond. But they've been testing new rockets into the into the sea because they want to challenge the Iron Dome and they want to extend the, the, both the payload and the range of, of uh, their missile uh, capacity. And they publicly talk about going from Jordan to the Mediterranean. I told our friends in Washington, how can we talk to them? Here, look at what they said. They said it again. Destroy the Jewish state. Wipe it off the map. And you feel that this is still somebody we can sit down with, that we ought to find some path when they when they're talking against the United, I mean, America still is the great Satan. Their support for ISIS, we know that they're doing more and more in Iraq. Um, General Soleimani was there. Actually, their troops did not do that well in the particular uh, showdowns near Samara. But they, their presence there is increasing. Their uh, presence in in Yemen, the the Houthis can continue to consolidate in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq as they boast about it. And now in Sudan. And we are continuing, and it's this blind approach to the world and the disproportion. So you have the U.N. Security Council obsessed with Israel. You have the Geneva Convention (laughs) obsessed with Israel. The EU General Court 
dealing with Hamas. It was purely technical, and I believe it'll be reversed. And I think the United States today called yesterday evening called on the EU to 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 uh, declare Hamas a terrorist uh, state, a terrorist entity. Uh, they declared it a stunning victory. It wasn't. It was a purely technical move, and the court uh, withheld uh, removing sanctions for 30 months to give everybody a chance to appeal. I believe it'll be appealed. I believe it'll go back. But again, the, even the thought of Hamas in this, even even though it's technical and the court may not have had uh, much of a choice. In the meantime, the EU is debating resolutions about recognition, which undermine any chance of peace, and they stop short of, of the initial motion of uh, for recognition, and they say, you know, any recognition, we recognize the importance of recognition of the Palestinian state, but it has to come after negotiations, which is only a simple logic in, by any means. And yet the whole world on fire, all the things you mentioned, and this is all they're obsessed with. You know, George W. Bush, If you, I think if you would say what his legacy was, I think, you know, certainly at the top of the list would be the war on terror. The leader of the free world has an opportunity now to really declare a real war on terror and coordinate with allies around the world against all these groups, as we see what's going on, who could walk into any building, any business establishment, any school, any anything, and and you know start attacking in the name of you know their organization or their god or whatever it is they're representing. And it just seems, again, we've said this uh, many times over the last few months. It seems that Washington is not taking any type of leadership role in this area and not even getting as angry as you are publicly about the whole situation. And until the U.S. takes a leadership role, I don't see the world changing on this matter. I, I do believe the United States and the West as a whole has to take more of a role. It's interesting. I just saw a, a, a minor reference to the fact that Britain is building a new permanent military base. It's the first new one in 40 years in Bahrain and capable of holding aircraft carriers and destroyers. This is a very important statement by, by Britain about the significance of the region. Yeah, that they don't trust the U.S. to do it. No, the yeah. U.S. has a military presence. <laughs> I understand, but they may not think But they either think it's not as effective as it should be, or that the leaders of the U.S. wouldn't pull the trigger when they need to. So there's a general impression in the world that the West is not going to stand up and that the actions that we took, whether it was in Syria or other places, that the red lines aren't red lines or pink lines. It's not easy to do these things. And none of these are magic bullets that are going to change the situation on the ground. And, and frankly, these are tough decisions when you have to engage. It's a tough decision when the prime minister of Israel has to make a decision about what he does or the president or anybody else. The fact is, though, that if they, our enemies believed that we are prepared to take the necessary step. It's the perception, I keep telling in Washington, in the Middle East especially, perception's more important than reality. They have to believe that we're prepared. That's what they believed about Bush. It wasn't his policy wasn't better, and he, we had a lot of the problems we faced, you know, started in those years and even earlier. But it was because they believed that he was nuts enough to do the things. And they said it to me. Mm -hmm. I heard it from people. Right. They said, we really believed that Bush was unpredictable. He could right. do it. They didn't trust that he'd be They don't believe that America will do it. it you know, it's, it's not important, as important that we have the military presence. It's vital that we do. But they have to believe we're prepared uh, uh, to use it and to use the force. We are bombing. Look at the, the difference we make now with this, the freeing of the Yazidis, the bombings in, in Iraq, uh, Syria. But they... They have a problem. How do you? What do you do about Assad? It's not a simple. There's no simple magic bullet solution here. But there are things that we could do, and the messages and things that the West should have done early on in the beginning that uh, could have made a, a, a big base. We see the Al Nusra 
just took two military bases away from the Syrian government. Is that what we, who we want to see in control of Syria? No. And and the uh, and where did they get the weapons from? From that the U.S. gave to rebel groups that they took away from them, yeah. including American uh, tow missiles. And uh, a, a thousand Syrian troops were guarding these bases. Five hundred uh, escaped, and we believe uh, they claimed three hundred fifty were killed and two hundred captured. Um, from these things that get almost no attention in the press, which could be a, a you know a, a very significant uh, shift. And the thank God the things like Geneva Convention the meeting doesn't even get much press. <laughs> uh, Malcolm Holmline with us, Erev Shabbos Hanukkah. A hundred topics we're not going to get to. Uh, let me ask you a couple of them. Uh, what do you think of Sony pulling the movie? Well, we're certainly inviting intimidation. We're going to invite, I understand why they did it. You know, it's a business decision. It's a security decision. But, and, and we will find that it's not just North Korea, that this had to go through a series of steps because they, they have to protect, you know, the source. So they don't want to be shown that it was them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if their buddy, uh, Iran wasn't involved in somehow, in some way. But, you know what does that mean? That no one will will make a movie that's critical of of you know anything to do with the Taliban or Afghanistan or or the what's going on in Syria or ISIL because they're afraid of of uh, the consequences that we'd be threatened. It's really a serious move, and, and this concession is only only feeds the terrorists. I'm saying I understand why they do it, and I don't want to see you know people being hurt, but I, I, you know, we can take security measures. There are ways to deal with it. But it reminds us that we have a whole new front, and that's the cybersecurity front. And we haven't got the tools really to, to contain it. We have better and better firewalls. But just think of how you could disrupt a whole economy based on, on, on their capacity to steal records, to mess up things, to get into nuclear files. It's endless. When you think about it, it's a miracle it hasn't happened yet. Um, it have happened. You know. Yeah, but not to the degree that you're describing. But, yes, of course it happens. Northern border of Israel, we keep reading. I mean, again, I bring this up to you every few weeks because there's always reports coming about uh, you know, the hotbed of activity up there. What could you tell us today about it? Well, it is true that uh, Nusra, I, I reported, we're, we're, we're closer to the border, um, ISIS, lately coming closer, but they're using it as a base to operate against the Syrian army. But they are encroaching closer to the border with Israel. Israel, uh, the, the border itself is con- controlled by uh, Syrian rebel groups who are entrenched there. Israel works with them, supports them, whether uh, well, whatever way they do, uh, and certainly Jordan. Uh, so the border is not right now in danger, and there's no indication that they want to try, that they will even consider challenging Israel now, because neither the Syrian government nor the uh, al-Qaeda or other groups, because they know that the response will be devastating. No matter who the prime minister ends up being. No matter who, but the, the message of the government's intentions is very important. That's why I think any candidate has to make clear that Israel will not in any way diminish, that it will be tougher, in fact, in enforcing the security of its borders and the war against terrorism, and, and hopefully together with the United States, with other countries in the West, that there will be a concerted, a truly concerted um, action, because everybody becomes a victim. As you said, we yeah. saw it this week. Everybody becomes the victim of the tolerance of, of, of intolerance and tolerance of, of terrorism. 
No question about it. Uh, Eli Ishai leaving Shas, will that have any effect on the possible coalitions after the election? Yes, it could. And, and you know, there will be a lot of shifting and maneuvering going on. Uh, as you know, you may have seen the polls show BB recovering uh, from the initial uh, polls and the, the reaction to the marriage of Livni and uh, <laughs> uh, in the Labor Party with uh, Bougie Herzog. And I think that You'll see a lot of waves. There is still strong anti-incumbent feelings against Netanyahu. Um, about you know, when you're in office for a long time, people get there's a fatigue there. But when they look at it and they say, according to the polls and things that I've read, the analysis that you know who else can lead it, who else will be, and and if the security threats increase, people will go for the tried and tested, even if they disagree with them on a lot of issues. Well, Kachlo and Lieberman are uh, now seem to be a couple. Well, there are. Well, that that's not going to happen. I don't think it will not happen. I think that. And he, Lieberman, thinks he could. It won't happen before the election. It could happen that they will go into some sort of coalition after the election. He thinks he'd be effective enough in the role, Lieberman. Pardon me. He thinks he'd be effective enough in the role, and uh, when it comes, I I didn't comment on whether he would be effective or how he'd be seen. He has rehabilitated his image a lot with the American government, which you know, and he's very close to, to Putin and to others. Whether people see him as a prime minister or not, you know, time will tell when they will test it, but they will test everybody. You think Michael Oren's going to be on a Knesset list? I don't think so. And, um, by the way, if you're wondering, Alon Shvud is not in Israel, according to the New York Times. That's true. You saw that. Probably Israel shouldn't be in Israel, according to <laughs> That's true. But I, I said one thing, at least the New York Times is consistent, you know what I mean? <laughs> and remember, Malcolm, on this era of Shabbos Hanukkah, there'll be a United States embassy in Havana before one in Jerusalem. Could we get a member of Congress to get out on the stump and say that this weekend? I'm sure there are people who will, who will be willing to say it. We don't have an American embassy there yet, but we will. And the president, obviously, is giving this a priority. Um, I just hope it doesn't translate and indicate anything that, in terms of what, what our expectations are in Iran, um, that you know we, we uh, move ahead and then see this as a real option. Iran's activities... Turkey's activities, others have no price. There's no uh, restrictions, uh, really. I mean, we have obviously in Iran extensive sanctions, and America is, is implementing those sanctions, and those continue uh, by and large. And their economic conditions still suffer, and they they can't access the money even for the oil they sell for a large part of it. But now with the drop in the price of oil uh, for Iran. Uh, which has still too many leeways where they can, you know, do bilateral trading with money that they have in other countries. Um, we have to really turn the screws. We see again the the nature, the true nature of the activity, what they're doing, how they're encouraging terrorism around the world, how they uh, are supporting uh, the worst elements and themselves extending uh, the Iranian presence and footprint uh, around the region. Hey, enjoy Shabbos Hanukkah. Sure, but people should take seriously this discussion and remember that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes it's a train coming at you. But this week, <laughs> the lights are real and a reminder that we overcame worse. We will overcome this if we remain united. It's hey, I saw the... Tw- I, and if we stand together, we can overcome it. I saw the 2014 Aliyah statistics from Nefesh Benefesh. There's definitely some hope out there, I can tell you that much. There is a lot of hope, and we have a great state, Jewish state. We have great friends in America. We see more and more how many people from different segments of American society are rallying to the to the lights of uh, 
of the Maccabees in, in our time. It's by Yami Mahim Basmanazad. The no miracles question. of those days are happening now. We just have to appreciate them. We have to recognize them. We have to show God that we, we are deserving of them. No question. Have a wonderful Shabbos and Chag Urim Sameach.